Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. I took a much-needed intermission after our Christmas special at the end of 2021, and am now back with a, I would say vengeance, but that implies I have some sort of grudge, which I do not. Not even with the state of South Dakota, which is now the only state in the contiguous 48 that has recorded no downloads of this humble show. Not one! I often hear a lot of smack talk between the Dakotas, and South Dakota often claims it's the better of the two. But based purely on listenership, the truest Dakota, in this case, is North Dakota. Anyway, uh, happy 2022 to all of you out there, whether you're a longtime fan or first-time listener. Today's guest is here to talk about Maine's time in the spotlight as the first state to ban the manufacture and sale of alcohol more than 60 years before the 18th Amendment became a part of the Constitution. The so-called Maine Law became a flashpoint in debates over how, or even if, regulation of alcohol was acceptable in 19th century America. Why was Maine the first state to take this dramatic step? And why were so many Americans joining the temperance movement in the 19th century? A note on this episode, our guest experienced a touch of audio interference. Most of it was scrubbed, but rest assured, it's not you, it's me. Your speakers are fine. Anyway, a buzz about this temperance episode has been building long enough. Let's do this. My guest today is Kyle Volk, Associate Professor of History at the University of Montana and author of Moral Minorities and the Making of American Democracy. Kyle, welcome to Mainly History. Ian, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. It's really a pleasure. You're known as a scholar of moral minorities. Uh, Could you please explain who this concept refers to in American history? Sure. I'm kind of happy to be known as a scholar of moral minorities. I never thought of myself like that. Basically, when I think of moral minorities, I think about groups, groups of people who are or were on the wrong side or the losing side of a moral question, uh, a moral question that was somehow in public life. And I seized upon the idea of moral minorities when I was looking for a way to talk about disparate groups of people really in the mid 19th century who were on the losing side of various moral questions at that point in time. Um, I looked at three moral questions uh, in the mid 19th century uh, that were pretty divisive in American culture, Uh, Sabbath observance, particularly Sunday legislation, like legal requirements for doing certain things and not doing certain things on Sunday, temperance and alcohol consumption, and also and importantly, conflicts over racial mixture, racial segregation, racial equality. So one of those conflicts you mentioned uh, was this contest over liquor liquor production, sale, and consumption in the 19th century. 
I find with my students, the movement to limit the sale and production of alcohol is often one of the more misunderstood ones. To mm. your mind, what's the most, uh, the most misunderstood aspect, aspect of the, the temperance movement in America in the 19th century? <laughs> That's a great question. I think there's lots of misunderstood aspects. Um, if I had to pick one or just go with one right now, I would say, I think temperance was actually a response to a real problem. Uh, I think there's a caricature of the temperance movement as being, I don't know, a bunch of Protestant evangelicals and busybodies who are trying to impose their will on the people, on the masses, merely to, to control them. And certainly there's a lot of truth to that, that caricature, but yet I think the temperance reform was a serious response to a, a really great, a dangerous rise in alcohol consumption in the early 19th century. Uh, famously, this historian, Bill Rohrbaugh, kind of crunched the numbers and, and kind of examined how much people were drinking in the early 19th century. And famously, he, he figured out that in the mid-1820s, Americans were, were drinking kind of per capita more than they ever had before and more than they ever have since. You know, the, the numbers are a little fuzzy, but Americans were drinking something like four to six gallons of pure alcohol uh, per year. And that's about uh, twice the amount that we drink today. So for people involved in the temperance reform, they were seriously concerned. And I think they had good reason to be. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of this was tied to specifically spirits rather than beer and wine. And that like a lot of the concern, certainly you see some of it in the 18th century with the, the rise of gin in uh, in Britain, but then right. in the in the U.S. with the rise of, of whiskey, above all, uh, I was surprised to learn this. Alcohol is very old in human history, but spirit liquor is actually rather new in most uh, human societies uh, and in most places. And that for many people, they had these established drinking habits, and then they effectively got you know new, stronger drugs. Like this is a, a familiar tale to modern Americans, right? From other for other aspects of health crises, right? And and people's drinking habits were not really acclimated to having you know uh, eighty proof whiskey or, or whatever. Or, uh, I'm bad at the proofs. I think eighty proof, <laughs> but anyway, you know the no, high, the strong and stuff. I yeah, I think, and I think you're absolutely right. I think you know distillation is really an early modern phenomenon, whereas, as you suggest, you know, drinking beer or wine, lower uh, alcohol, um, you know, uh, beverages, that is a long history. Humans were used to that; they knew how to to kind of handle that level of consumption for the most part. Um, but the introduction of rum and gin and eventually whiskey change things because now uh, Americans and, and humans in various parts of the world are consuming a, a spirit that has intense amounts of, uh, of alcohol, so much more than what they were accustomed to, to drinking previously. And in the early 19th century, American farmers in particular start dis distilling corn uh, and wheat to some extent, but lots of corn into immense amount of whiskey. Whiskey became super cheap uh, on the American market really everyone's drinking whiskey um, with reckless abandon, apparently. And uh, as a result, consumption levels are, are sky high. Hmm. With this, uh, you mentioned the 1820s seemed to be the, the real peak problem of, of alcoholism. 
So when and where did the temperance movement begin in the United States? And then why is it there and then that it really gets its start? Yeah, um, well, I mean, there's certainly important 18th century precursors to the, the 19th century temperance movement, but it's really in the early 19th century that, that temperance becomes a kind of reform phenomenon in the United States. I would describe it as, as part of a, a wave of religiously inspired uh, moral reform crusades that really swept across various parts of the United States. It was especially popular uh, in northern states, really getting its start first in New England, upstate New York, places like this. I think there's there's lots of reasons for why why there uh, in in kind of the American North, the Northeast, and why in the early 19th century. I mean, this is a time of massive social and economic change, as we just described. There's a lot of alcohol uh, around for people to, to drink, time of rising alcohol consumption. Um, it's also a time, famously, of, of changing and rising religiosity. This is the time of the Second Great Awakening. There's Protestant-oriented religious revivals going on. Preachers are, are circulating in, in New England and upstate New York and, and telling people to do various things to be uh, less sinful, including to drink less. And out of that kind of religious ferment, there's a widespread formation of, of anti-vice and local reform societies and associations that are dedicated, I don't know, to tackling various evils like swearing or Sabbath breaking and, and yes, um, drinking. Eventually in 1820s, and we can focus on an individual uh, a congregationalist preacher named Lyman Beecher, who's probably one of the most important and influential non-politicians uh, in, in the early 19th century. He kind of takes the lead in the, in the temperance reform. And by the mid-1820s, he gives some famous sermons, the six sermons on temperance. Uh, he, he, in temperance, he publishes them widely. And I think the year after, maybe 1826, he, he forms the American Temperance Union, which is nominally a national organization, but it's really an, an umbrella organization to unite all of these local temperance and reform societies that had formed and to kind of bring them under the uh, auspices of one kind of national organization so they can coordinate their efforts to get people to drink less. We should point out Beecher is the head of what becomes this enormous family of New England moral reformers, including Harriet Beecher Stowe, best known for writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, but then also Henry Ward Beecher, a bunch of other folks as well involved, not only in temperance, but then also in women's rights and anti-slavery causes as well. Mm -hmm, absolutely. I think that's it's a good point to touch on the, uh, I think sometimes for modern audiences, the surprising connections between the temperance movement and the women's rights movement. Sure. And I think one of the ways that that gets illustrated is so many of these temperance organizations, they one of the, the big ones ends up calling itself the Anti-Saloon League later in mm. the century. And I think that's revealing because, you know, a lot of these organizations, they don't call themselves the no more beer for you league or something like that, but rather the anti-saloon league. Why was the saloon such a focus 
of so much of the reformers' energy in curtailing or shutting these these places down. I mean, the the saloon really takes off as the target in the late 19th century when saloons emerge in in cities uh, in particular as places where working men would go to to drink and fraternize um, after a long day of work in some kind of industrial uh, job. And these became seen as by reformers as as places where where men were just uh, falling, (laughs) morally falling, um, sometimes literally falling and hurting themselves. Um, places where saloon keepers were sucking what little money industrial workers had uh, out of the pockets of industrial workers. So these very much became kind of the stand-in for all that was wrong with drink and the place to be eradicated. The idea was if you eradicate the saloon, then you can eradicate the drink problem. So that's very much a late 19th century development. And I think it builds on this pre-Civil War kind of focus of temperance reformers where they're they're going after the places and the spaces where people drink the public houses the licensed houses where liquor dealers are are purveying drink um, and selling alcohol and and men mostly are, are doing the consumption there so you mentioned that it's the men doing the consumption there for women's rights advocates, whether they were in favor of women's suffrage or not, because not all of them were in the 19th century, uh, mm. they argued oftentimes that they had bigger fish to fry, and one of those fish was temperance. Why were women in particular framing temperance often as a, a women's issue? Lots of reasons. I think most obviously and most perhaps easily understandable is that that drink was considered, I think quite rightly, a threat to the household, that men drinking um, ruined, could ruin a family, economically in particular. Men would, you know, spend money that they shouldn't be spending. Um, They would fall into bad habits. They would become what we would think of today as addicts. They wouldn't be able to work. So that would cause all sorts of economic problems for a family. They could lose their home. But really, there's all of these images, great temperance images of the effect of a drunk father on a family. And we're talking about domestic abuse and violence, uh, wife beating, uh, abusing children. These were you know, serious and real concerns that women had about the effect of drink on their husbands and thus on their families. So it, very, alcohol temperance very much became a women's issue in this way. But I think it's also important to point out, Ian, that, you know, Temperance, the temperance reform became one of the main places where women actually became politically active. Temperance opened up a space for women to have things to say about public life, um, about whether there should be licensed liquor establishments in their town, for example. Prior to that moment, perhaps women shouldn't be involved in public life, right? Public life in American democracy was a male space, but now all of a sudden temperance becomes this issue, this major question in women really from the 1820s and certainly building exponentially with the founding of the Women's Christian Temperance Union after the Civil War. Women have space to have a lot to say about drink and then lots of other issues, um, including women's suffrage, of course. That's a good point. And we should add, because you know this, I know, but that (laughs) especially before the Civil War, in a number of states, women were still subject to coverture. And so uh, for a married woman uh, whose husband got drunk and spent away her inheritance or gambled away their property or whatever, she had no legal recourse and that their 
property was really effectively his. And so at a time when women had few legally respectable options for, for protecting themselves that way, the temperance movement was one way to protect themselves within the, the boundaries of this still very, for them, compromised position of marriage. Absolutely. Yeah. And divorce was difficult to, to come by as well. Yes. And that's always something my students are shocked to learn that you know, divorce was very much a women's rights issue. And for obvious reasons, you know, especially in this time, sometimes still today, it's a matter of life and death. And mm-hmm. that it's not that people of all backgrounds can get trapped in miserable marriages, but it was much more likely to be women who were in danger of getting shut out into poverty, or of course, they're having their lives and children threatened. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. You were talking about women getting involved in, in the temperance movement. Looking back a little broadly, uh, right before we get to the first major success in Maine, what types of people supported temperance in 19th century America in terms of, you know, socioeconomic background, maybe sure. their, their ethnic background, you know, where they live, that kind of thing? Lots of people supported temperance, which is, I think, another thing that's, that's misunderstood about the temperance movement, right? It's not just a small segment of, of do-gooders who are trying to push temperance in society. Um, temperance is amazingly effective in establishing teetotalism, the idea of you, you won't drink anything, as, as a kind of moral norm for the rising American middle class. So lots of middle class folks were talking about market-oriented farmers, lawyers, businessmen, shopkeepers, these types of people who are a rising class of people in the 19th century. They embraced temperance and joined temperance societies pretty hardcore. And they signed the teetotal pledge. Middle-class homes would often have a framed in their, in their home, uh, in their dining area, perhaps uh, something framed that would say like this family has taken the teetotal pledge that we do not drink alcohol in this home. So lots of middle-class folks, men and women, certainly we're talking about overwhelmingly Protestant Americans, Catholics and immigrants were far less likely to, to join the temperance crusade. For a while in the 1840s, there's a kind of spinoff of the temperance uh, movement called the Washingtonian Crusade. And that was more of a self-help kind of stop drinking effort really among the working class. Um, and I think that's important, but it doesn't have maybe as much staying power as more mainstream temperance, which really uh, was popular among uh, the middle class. There were surprising numbers of famous Americans who were temperance, right? Like I know Frederick Douglass said, I'm a temperance man because I'm an anti-slavery man. Uh, you have this speech in Lynn, Massachusetts, talking about where you see temperance. There's no kids freezing in winter. Poverty and want are not in, in view, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, Douglas, William Lloyd Garrison, others completely saw temperance as, as part of a larger reform struggle, even the anti-slavery struggle. I mean, if you read slave narratives, kind of the, the, the figure of the, the drunken slave master, slaver, often figures prominently in slave narratives. And so I think there's, there's kind of this temperance message that's, that's often woven into those types of abolitionist tracts. Who was the first non-drinking president? Was it Lincoln? I'm going to go with Lincoln. Um, although, he was totally you know, dry? He was dry. Oh, Abe, was, okay. Abe, was, Abe was dry. And it's, it's fascinating because early in his career in Illinois, he actually owned a, a store that had a, had a liquor license. So he, he, he sold alcohol early in his, his work life. But uh, after that business went under, 
in part because his partner who he owned the business with uh, liked to drink a little bit too much. Uh, Abe came to uh, embrace temperance. He was never a prohibitionist and anti-prohibitionists always like to point that out, but he was definitely uh, a temperance supporter and a teetotaler, a non-drinker. And that that puts him with, with lots of other famous people who don't drink alcohol, um, political leaders, Joe Biden, uh, George W. Bush, Donald Trump, Adolf Hitler. These are all <laughs> teetotaling leaders. Yes, yes, indeed. We could so we're we going, yeah. stop there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, I thought the first president was Rutherford B. Hayes, because I know his, I don't think Lincoln's White House made as much of a show of it. I know that yeah. Hayes, the opponents, or just wets, as they were called, always made kind of grumbling jokes about lemonade lucy the first lady of the hayes administration because that's that's all she'd serve um so i thought it was the hayes's okay you know i don't i don't know i'd have to i'd have to explore more on on lincoln but it's just making me think that you know the the republican party during the civil war before was was very dependent as you know on kind of the support of, of germans in the north and germans certainly were not teetotalers. They brought strong, you know, kind of beer drinking culture from uh, from Europe and whatnot. So it wouldn't surprise me if, if Abe didn't make such a public show of it. Plus, he wasn't a nativist, and there was a nativist strain of the temperance movement, or prohibition movement, especially, the, the idea that, well, it's these foreigners coming here and bringing their beer gardens or their Irish drinking habits or what what have you um and that part of you know assimilation or you know americanization was sort of getting them more virtuous and to drop their their bad drinking habits and such oh absolutely i think you know another misunderstood aspect of the temperance movement is that it was effective i mean if there was a peak in alcohol consumption in 1825 by 1850 consumption had fallen to really what it is today so now we're talking about 1850, but it's right at that moment in the mid 1840s to the mid 1850s that the U.S. starts to, especially the North, starts to be flooded with Irish and German immigrants who are bringing these very strong whiskey and beer and wine drinking traditions and also different styles of drinking, right? German immigrants drank with their families. Men and women drank together, often in public places. And that was something that was anathema to the the, the good old uh, native-born Protestant white Northern family. Now that we're at 1850, that brings us to the main law of 1851. So the Pine Tree State uh, holds the (laughs) distinction of being the first state to successfully legislate temperance in 1851. What specifically did the main law say about liquor? What did it actually ban and what did it what was it going to do to people who broke this law? So the main law passed by the state legislature of Maine uh, in 1851, it targeted the sale and the manufacture of alcohol. So it didn't say that people couldn't drink in their own homes if they somehow had access to alcohol. It really focused on banning the sale and manufacture of alcohol. And I think that's part of the temperance push to go after producers and to go after sellers people who reformers said tempted people to drink, enticed people to drink. There were some loopholes uh, in the law. The main law allowed for the sale 
and production of, of alcohol for medicinal purposes, some medical purposes, and also mechanical purposes, ostensibly for fuel or for other things along those lines. So I have to ask, why Maine? Why was Maine the first state to achieve this distinction? <laughs> and a great distinction it is. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think a couple of things to know. One, let's point out that by 1850, temperance as a reform enterprise had really politicized, which isn't to say that it became a political party, but more to say that it had become, uh, it was a crusade that was targeting public policy as well as kind of practices in public opinion on drink. So there were some important, I I guess we could say precursors to the main law. Uh, In Massachusetts, for example, in 1838, reformers got the state legislature to pass this thing called the 15 gallon law, which banned the sale of alcohol in quantities less than 15 gallons, which is (laughs) really, it's a really weird measure. If you had enough money to buy 15 gallons of you know, whiskey, you could do it, right? But you couldn't go to the grog shop and buy whiskey by the glass. That was outlawed. That means theoretically grog shops could give it away. That happened. <laughs> Is this the thing where they would start selling food that came with free drinks? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that happened after the passage of the 15-gallon law in Massachusetts in 1838 was some enterprising businessmen showed up on the green in Dedham, Massachusetts on Militia Day, uh, like the muster day, which is a very kind of wet uh, day when men came out and performed soldiery and that sort of thing. Anyway, he sets up a tent and says, hey, I have a striped pig in here. It costs five cents to see it. And if you give me the five cents and look at the striped pig, I'll give you a, a glass of whiskey for free. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, and, and that became the kind of the striped pig became the standard technique for avoiding the law. And as you suggest, giving away alcohol um, and people were paying for other things. So it starts right there. Needless to say, the 15 gallon law didn't last long. It was repealed two years later. But the point I'm trying to make here is that there were other kind of legal initiatives that were tried in the late 1830s and 1840s in various states to go after really liquor licensing and then the license and legal sale of alcohol. So Maine was was building on that. And also Maine in 1846 actually passed a precursor to the Maine law of 1851. They passed, a state legislature passed a prohibitory law. The challenge was, and that banned the sale and manufacture of alcohol, but it quickly became a dead letter. There was no enforcement for it. So a couple of years later, this guy named Neil Dow, who was eventually became the mayor of Portland, um, he was kind of obsessed with the temperance reform, wanted to eradicate drink from all of American life. He was a fanatical reformer, and he pushed the state legislature to pass a new main law in 1851, which had much stronger enforcement provisions. So what were these enforcement provisions that Mayor Dow pushed for? <laughs> mayor Dow. Um, Well, one thing he did was he got into the law provisions that allowed for search warrants to be given out by judges much more easily. The law also empowered kind of ordinary citizens alongside maybe the usual authorities to bring people who were selling alcohol to justice fundamentally, right? They were breaking the law. And if you were an ordinary citizen, you and two others could go to a judge and say, hey, we know someone who's breaking the law. We should be able to go search 
their home or their business and, and find their alcohol. And then the law also had seizure provisions, which allowed the authorities and really ordinary people to confiscate illegal alcohol and destroy it, to dump it in the gutter. And these were very powerful and, you know, to lots of people, invasive demonstrations of state power. There are other things. There were stiffer fines. People could be imprisoned for up to six months if they were a third-time offender of the main law. Uh, Neil Dow also did a wonderful thing where he started paying informants. He started paying people to kind of rat on their neighbors. After a while, temperance forces formed these things called Carson Leagues, which were something of I don't know, vigilante groups that existed to enforce the main law and bring people who were selling alcohol to justice. Did these various enforcement mechanisms work? I mean, or at least did did they catch a bunch of people or were a bunch they of did. Mainers punished under the main law? They did. Um, I think in the first year, something like 70 people were prosecuted and fined. I think there were a few people who saw some imprisonment. Um, and these were mostly liquor sellers, not people who were in doing the, the consuming because it was the sale uh, that was really against the law with the main law. But yeah, it was mm. it was enforced. And, and Neil Dow broadcast this across the temperance kind of community nationally saying, hey, look, we've done it here in Maine because all sorts of businesses went out of business uh, and or kind of went underground, which lots of them did, of course. Clearly, this wasn't wildly popular everywhere. So who resisted the main law and, and <laughs> how did they do it if they, you know, if they did so openly? Or was this just more sort of people quietly going around and evading capture? Well, there's certainly that, right? There's certainly quiet evasion. But um, I think... Dow was able to convince in Portland and, and other places, kind of the more respectable class of, of merchants and hotel keepers and people like that to close up shop. But pretty quickly, other folks maybe with looser morals uh, opened up establishments to take the place of those more respectable establishments. So these are new kind of hidden, you know, I don't know, watering holes um, and people to frequent them folks do all sorts of things to, to kind of evade the main law. They, they smuggle alcohol in from out of state. They start hiding it in walls and cellars and create false walls to hide alcohol from any authorities or anyone who's going to do any searching. Um, on the, the state line in New Hampshire, that becomes a popular spot for people to drink right across the, the <laughs> state line. Um, so there's a, a migration, I, su I suppose, mm. at times to the state line to, to drink in New Hampshire. And, and I think super importantly, working class folks and, and immigrants who were hostile to all of this and wanted to keep their, their traditions of drink alive, they often terms their, turned their homes, uh, their kitchens into bar rooms and sold alcohol out of their homes. Hmm. Did any kind of speakeasies arise or was that something that waited until actual national prohibition in the 20s? I mean, they certainly, they weren't called speakeasies sure. at the time. That's a later phenomenon. But yeah, I mean, new places, hidden places of, of, of drink uh, emerge. Okay. So Neil Dow is, is widely remembered as, as the, the big person pushing all this. Did he have any major allies of note or was this uh or was this really kind of the neil dow show 
uh, in terms of, you know, in, enforcement and boostering of this law? Um, I mean, it is the Neil Dow show in the sense that he is the, you know, a leader of temperance in Maine. He is the president of the Maine Temperance Union by 1850. He's, he's pushing the Maine law. He's, I don't know, he's got some, some fun names. He's the father of prohibition. People call him the Napoleon of temperance. I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, this is a, a kind of a, a prohibition-based zealot. I mean, this is a fanatical reformer. Um, he was native born, he was Protestant, middle class, if not, if not upper middle, upper middle class, he was a fairly well-off guy, he kind of fits the mold of the classic temperance reformer. And he, he took it to the, to the next level. Um, he does have, have kind of political friends in the sense that he needed to, to work the political scene in Maine circa 1850 and 1851 to get the law through the state legislature. And this is a time when the, the main political parties, uh, the Whig Party, Democratic Party, um, and the new Free Soil Party um, are kind of vying for control nationally. The issue of slavery is a, is a big deal in national politics. And these various parties that are, are kind of vying for control at the state level, the national level, they're really nervous about their ability to maintain their political support, the coalitions that have given them power over the past uh, decade or so. And Neil Dow is able to exploit that kind of unsettled state of party politics at the time in order to um, push his, his prohibitionist agenda and get the law passed. I should ask about the involvement of Maine's highest flying politico in the Whig and then Republican Party at this point, Hannibal Hamlin, Abraham Lincoln's incomparably named first vice president. <laughs> um, was he involved? Was he a Dow backer in state politics in the 50s? I'm actually not sure. I think he was a, a Democrat. Oh, um, until, okay. Until the Republican Party. Okay. I think up until the mid 1850s, he's kind of one of these free soil Democrats. Yeah. You know, gets on the Wilmot Proviso kind of train. Right and eventually embraces the Republican Party? I, I'd have to look. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. That's a great question, though. <laughs> listeners, listeners, fear not. There is going to be a Hannibal Hamlin episode. Uh, oh, cool. But he's he's very down the road. He's very, um, he's sadly just kind of really obscure. Even Lincoln didn't pay attention to him. One of the only Lincoln references to his VP that I, I found is he, uh, he referred to him as a boring old mouser and he had no, he just, he just didn't have a lot to do with him during the time Hamlin was veep. Then they let him go. Right. I mean, he's not the, he's not on the ticket. Andy right. Johnson. But that wasn't, that yeah. wasn't Lincoln's like, that wasn't really Lincoln's call. That was the yeah, party's sure. decision when they ran on the national union ticket to say, we're not just Republicans. We're everybody who's not a Confederate. But Lincoln didn't fight for him and he didn't really care. And so, yes, then, then Hamlin got the boot. And it's too bad because obviously maybe he would have been, should have. Yeah. Yeah. He would have been a wonderful president compared to Andrew Johnson, which was, you know, really what our part of the what the episode will be about down the road. Um, so anyway. All right. So sorry, Hannibal. Hannibal stands. <laughs> we'll have to we'll, we'll come back to him. So you mentioned Neil Dow as the, the Napoleon of temperance. And of course, mm. Napoleon led troops into battle. And Neil Dow also, in his own way, led troops into battle. Because in 1855, Portland became the scene of a, a bloody incident known as the Rum Riot. 
uh, in which people really were killed. So uh, if you could tell us what happens in the, the Portland rum riot of 1855, how do people end up killing over booze? Yeah, this is this is one of those kind of, I guess, classic events of, of the main law era. Um, earlier, I mentioned that there was a, a loophole uh, in the main law that allowed for the production and, and sale of medicinal uh, of alcohol for medicinal and mechanical purposes. And around 1855, I think it was early June in 1855, rumors started circulating that Neil Dow had a a kind of stock of this alcohol that could be used for those purposes in City Hall in Portland. And Irish immigrants and other working class folks in particular who, who weren't happy about the main law to begin with started learning about uh, this, this rumored booze in, in Portland in the, what, why can't I come up with the word? <laughs> in the city <laughs> Say hall? That again. Oh so yeah, like, in city oh, hall. Right. Oh, okay, so yeah. sorry. So they, they heard about rumored booze in city hall. Yes, they did. And they, they kind of go to city hall. Um, first couple hundred people kind of show up. And they're demanding access to this alcohol. And by the end of the day, apparently, you know, a thousand people show up and the crowd forms, they start to get a little bit unruly. They start to seem like a mob. And Neil Dow shows up on the, the steps of City Hall. He's concerned. He eventually calls out the militia. They show up with guns. And after a while, Dow orders the crowd to disperse. They don't. Eventually, Neil Dow apparently orders the militia to fire shots into the crowd. And that left one man dead. There's an immigrant guy by the name of John Robbins and a bunch of other people, upwards of seven, maybe more people were injured in the incident. This became really bad press for the main law and for Neil Dow. For audience members wondering where there's any sort of remainder of of what happened in terms of, I don't think there's any real monuments or anything to the, the, the rum riot or plaques in, in Portland, but the I learned the big Irish immigrant neighborhood in Portland was centered today where the John Ford statue is. And so Mainers and people who go to Portland, it's near the, the commercial wharf area today, but the it's this intersection. It's got like three different streets that sort of go through it. There's a lot of delicious restaurants that I highly recommend that are all on this intersection. So if you want the the Irish immigrant neighborhood experience. Just go there and dine at these delicious restaurants. And then you can walk up the hill to City Hall from the John Ford statue. Uh, That's really all there is of it today. It's, of course, you know, dramatically transformed cityscape. I'll say there's also a business that has embraced the Portland rum riot. Maybe uh, some business trading in alcohol that's, that's, that's putting out a product with the Portland rum riot. Um, But I'd have to double check on that. Oh, like just a brewery somewhere? A brewery or distillery, something like that. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, there's so many good breweries in Maine that I wouldn't be surprised. Neil Dow's own house, Neil Dow's house is still there in, in Maine in the West End. And it is currently maintained by a prohibition organization who continues to ignore my emails requesting they sit for an interview because I would love to talk to a modern prohibition party. And of course, uh, you know, get to talk to them about their preservation of the house. But so if you're listening, if you're listening, Neil Dow, house, uh, house custodians, my social media feeds, they're all open. D slide into my DMs, please. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, I just did a quick look up. Yes, there's the Portland Rum Riot Rum that is produced uh, by Maine Craft Distilling. Oh, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I'm going to have to, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to, next time uh, I'm able, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to taste this Portland Rum Riot Rum. I will release my, my evaluations to the, to the listeners. We'll see. (laughs) We'll see how it is. Once the Rum Riot disperses, besides the people unfortunate enough to be killed or, or injured, what is the impact of this violence in, in Maine and around the country? I think the rum riots, it, it's one of, of, of several altercations that happen in the mid 1850s um, in, in Chicago. There's the lager beer riot um, and there's some other events like this. And these events start to bring some Americans who were temperance supporters and prohibitionists, starts to bring them to start to really rethink their commitments to prohibition. They start asking, you know, kind of obvious questions was riot, chaos, military troops deployed, death. I mean, was really all worth it to prohibit alcohol? And I think there's generally uh, in the 1850s, early 1850s with the main law, people are questioning it regardless. And then these uh, kind of more violent events really punctuate that that kind of ongoing questioning um, that was happening Um, because the main law was something new. I mean, it was something new in U.S. history, U.S. legal history. This was, as I described, a really powerful law. Those search and seizure provisions that I described seemed to many like super invasive government, something Americans hadn't seen very much. And it was also a law, let's, let's face it, that, that destroyed property, liquor, alcohol. These things were legal commodities before the main law. And now the main law in Maine and the other states that passed something like it turned something that was legal into contraband, destroyed property rights. And that was, again, something that lots of Americans had questions about, not only for alcohol, but for other things. If the state legislature could destroy alcohol as a legal commodity, what else might they be able to destroy? That's a good point. That does explain how, particularly the Democratic Party, which was usually more wet, uh, mm. to use the parlance of the time, how many Democrats, even those who didn't drink, sort of justified their their positions on, you know, what we kind of call libertarian grounds. And then they also often defended slavery on the same grounds. They would say, well, you know, uh, if the government's big enough to take the beer out of your hands, it can take the slaves out of your off of your property. And what else can it do as well? Yeah, I mean, that was, as you well know, I mean, a super persuasive argument in the South. Um, yes. And, you know, part of the reason why legal temperance po- prohibition doesn't make inroads into the American South uh, like it did uh, in the North. Right. How did temperance advocates and their opponents' strategies shift after, well, really after 1855, but in a big way after <clears throat> the American Civil War? Because clearly, the nation was somewhat preoccupied in the very late 1850s and 1860s with Civil War-related matters to, uh, to to trouble with liquor that much. But how did after this episode, right in general, how did the strategy shift in terms of you know uh, regulation and resistance? Well, first, I'd say that you know to some extent, main law prohibition stays in place in some states. You know, in some states, the law gets thrown out in court, and then the state legislature reenacts another measure that happened in Massachusetts. The main law in Maine stays enacted for quite some time. So legal prohibition stays in certain states. I'd say still the general trend is that 
by the late 1850s, the main law era has ended and temperance reformers, as you suggest, are busy thinking about other things. There's a lull during the Civil War period. Reformers are worried about war. They're worried about the politics of slavery and emancipation, that sort of thing. But by the late 1860s and certainly into the 1870s, temperance comes back with a vengeance. And the Prohibition Party, a third party that's founded in the late 1860s, the Women's Crusade of the early 1870s, the formation of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in the 1870s, these types of groups and organizations, and then the Anti-Saloon League that you mentioned earlier, these types of groups form, organize, uh, become exceedingly popular, and start to push a prohibitionist uh, agenda. Sometimes that means they're pushing local policies, state-level prohibition, things that were called local option laws that allowed local communities to determine whether they would be dry towns or dry counties. Sunday legislation, banning the sale of alcohol on the Lord's Day, that was another big issue. Eventually, National prohibition becomes the ultimate goal, but it's often built upon these very kind of local and state level struggles that temperance reformers focus on. Have oh, you found ahead. in your work uh, any of these these activists saying they, they learned particular lessons or drew any uh, any conclusions from what, what happened in Maine in the 1850s? Yes, from a from a, a, a legal perspective, they, they kind of learned that they can do it. In other words, gotcha. that, you know, that this happened in the 1850s. It wasn't the most successful episode of prohibition, but for the most part, you know, there's exceptions, important exceptions in Indiana and New York, kind of high courts validated this exercise of power and of uh, state power, prohibition, and reformers became convinced that they'd be able to enact laws like that, that those laws would be upheld and that that could be, you know, the pathway to, to a dry America. Um, Neil Dow doesn't go anywhere. He comes back, right? The Prohibition Party eventually runs him as a candidate for president, right? He becomes a figurehead of the possibility of prohibition because of the work uh, that he did in Maine with the Maine law, as well as broadcasting its successes, apparent successes, um, widely. Hmm. So thinking about uh, uh, strategies and, and lessons learned, did the strategies of the temperance advocates and of their wet uh, opponents shape other social and legal movements in the late 19th century, early 20th century? Well, let me just say something about the, the wets, the opponents, because mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've been highlighting the, the temperance of forces. In what I've written about, the moral minorities that I focus on are in this aspect of, of the book that I've written are the wets, the anti-temperance folks, the anti-prohibitionists. And I focus on the 1840s and the 1850s, and particularly you know, the, the main law era, where wets refused to give up their drink, and they Kind of embraced all kinds of political tactics to defend their businesses, their livelihoods, uh, their cultural practices. They kind of mimicked the temperance reformers' tactics. Uh, they tried to wage a battle in public opinion to convince Americans that alcohol wasn't necessarily all bad, that people could drink moderately, that moderate consumption was okay. They hired attorneys, they practiced civil disobedience. They 
broke the main law intentionally so that they'd be able to go to court and challenge the legality of the various search and seizure measures, or they could challenge the constitutionality of the main law saying it was an unjust invasion of property rights or basic rights to liberty that were guaranteed by state constitutions. So those sorts of tactics, I argue, were forged really uh, in the fires of the main law in the 1850s. And then they very much continue on uh, in the late 19th century as temperance reformers reorganize and continue to push a prohibitionistic agenda. Okay. You focus on legal minorities. Uh, Arguably, right, the temperance and the West took turns being minorities at different points. Did they ever kind of learn from each other's methods? Was there any sort of self-conscious reflection on on the parts of the, the activists on both sides? Uh, thinking about what worked and what didn't? Yeah, I think so. First, you know, to just say on the question of, you know, switching sides as sure. minorities, to to some extent, that's, 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 that's right. We can say that, you know, in the 1820s, drink was pervasive and temperance reformers were in the minority. But at the same time, you know, from what I've seen, temperance reformers really didn't think of themselves as a minority at the time. They thought of themselves as reformers seeking to change, you know, a cultural habit that they saw as super destructive. And I I get that perspective that they had. But what they do by the 1840s, because of the success of their reform crusade, is the temperance reformers start to say, we are in the majority. And they start to target their wet opponents, liquor dealers, drinkers, distillers, hotel keepers, saying that they are a a minority and should bow to the will of the temperate teetotaling majority. So they identify their enemy as a minority in kind of a power play, right? And they're they're claiming this very democratic, majoritarian mantle. And this is the age of the rise of American democracy, some would say. Majoritarianism had power. Temperance reformers are building upon that ethos and using it to overpower dissenters, right? They said, you're a minority you need to just follow along with the, major- the majority. Well, the, the wets said, we are in the minority. At least they're saying this in the 1840s and the 1850s. And they start to say, wait a second. Minorities have to have rights in the American political system. American democracy can't be all about majority rule. And they started saying things like this, the main law, for example, is classic evidence of the tyranny of the majority in American life. And it's tyrannizing us, the wet minority. Yeah, so they continue to make those types of claims. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm careful not to describe temperance reformers early on as a minority, because I'm trying to stay close to the language and the words that people were using at the time, if that makes sense. It does. So, yeah, I would say that about that kind of aspect. But they, these two groups, the other part of your question is, they certainly borrow from each other, and the wets certainly borrow from the dries. They realized, uh, liquor dealers and drinkers and their, their colleagues realize early on that this battle to defend themselves, defend the legal ability to, to sell and drink alcohol, that that's going to be a legal battle. It's going to be won in courts, but it's also going to be a battle in, in public opinion. They need to get out there and have their voice heard so that the masses understand their perspective and hopefully adopt and embrace it that you know, alcohol should remain legal. So I think that's, that's a really important part of the borrowing process. 
thinking broadly, what was the legacy of this 19th century struggle for the status of moral minorities in American law and society? That's a good question. Um, well, I mean, first of all, you know, the alcohol question, the prohibition question remains a major question, at least until the, the 1930s, when prohibition, sure. national prohibition officially ends. And questions of majority and minority, the rights of, of both parties in, in democratic, small d, democratic America, that remains part of the debate over prohibition. Who's the majority? Who's the minority? Who has rights? What are the ex- what's the extent of majoritarian power? Um, also, how much influence should organized reform groups like temperance groups have in American life? Over time, wets start to say this is kind of a political cabal that's exercising too much power uh, in American life. They say that about the anti-saloon league, and the anti-saloon league was super powerful, and that's how. the group that was most responsible for the passage of the 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act. And anyway, Wetz would would point to that as a real problem, a power imbalance in American public life, politics, democracy, so on and so forth. But you're also asking about moral minorities and and what that means in the late 19th century and kind of the impact of um, this conflict over the main law. And I think what I've tried to show in my work is is that the question of minority rights is dependent, was dependent, I mean, it's historical, it was dependent upon the issues of the day. We don't normally, I think, look back and think of wets as drinkers and liquor dealers as minorities, right? We have a 21st conception of minorities as being racial, maybe religious, right? Overwhelmingly, that's what we think. But in the mid-19th century, um, the alcohol question showed that Americans at the time thought about minorities a bit more flexibly, that it was about where you stood on a particular issue. There was certainly an ethnocultural side to that, and Germans and and Irish immigrants were overwhelmingly wet. They were anti-prohibitionists. They were certainly a minority, but lots of native white Protestants also uh, were part of the anti-prohibitionist minority and talked about themselves as such. I think that continues on into the 19th century, into the early 20th century, as moral minorities, in this case, wets, group together, can conceptualize as a minority and do things to advocate for their rights vis-a-vis um, a hostile public policy like prohibition. Mm, okay. What is something that you're working on or have recently come out with that our audience should be aware of? Well, Ian, once you start working on alcohol, it's, it's kind of hard to stop working on alcohol. <laughs> so <laughs> one thing that I've been working on is the period you've been asking uh, about, which is the late 19th and early 20th century. And I've, I've, I've followed in my research struggles over booze in that period quite a bit. I'm working on a book that's on the concept of personal liberty in American history, kind of exploring how the idea of personal liberty has been used by different groups from the revolution to maybe uh, today. So it's a kind of long durée kind of study looking at the idea of personal liberty. But lo and behold, in the late 19th and early 20th century, the most active deployers of the concept of personal liberty were anti-prohibitionists, whereas majority rule and minority rights very much dominated the question of drink and democracy in the mid-19th century around the main law. 
that continues in the late 19th century, but overwhelmingly the question becomes one of personal liberty, whether or not prohibition is an infringement upon citizens' personal liberty to drink, to sell, to own property of a particular variety, in this case, um, alcohol. So I've been working on that kind of larger book, Alcohol is a Component Piece of that struggle. And I think it's a kind of touchstone moment in the late 19th and early 20th century when Americans start to really negotiate the great expansion of state power in their life and to think about what are the proper limits, if any, of state power. For progressive reformers, they didn't see many limits at all. But for pro-alcohol folks, they looked at prohibition and said, there's something not quite right here. We're giving government too much power to interfere in our lives, our businesses, our traditions, and we're going to be active to kind of try and prevent that. And they use the language of personal liberty at the forefront of their crusade. Interesting. I really hope selfishly that your work continues past the end of prohibition, because like there's so many blue laws and various controls, both nationally and then locally that remain on when and where and how people can drink. And for people who like, you know, kind of obscure, sometimes confusing seeming local laws, you know, many of them are tied to booze. And, you know, it's it's definitely one of those things that supposedly everybody knows that like prohibition ended and then that was the end of the issue in 1933. And of course, no, the feds and states kept a huge amount of, of regulatory authority over 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 booze so much regulation i mean i am just thinking about how, how states and localities have relaxed their laws during covid to allow people to you know deliver alcohol or take to go right. drinks i mean that's built on the prohibition of those activities right uh, yeah it's fascinating and then there's the whole you didn't need a liquor license until after prohibition and then that became weirdly or conversely uh, a huge problem for gay bars, which had already become uh, sure. a thing, that the the number one way that local authorities could crack down on on gay bars and the gay community was through the liquor stuff, the liquor licenses. Absolutely. Um, and on yeah. and on. So um, no, but I mean what you're suggesting is that there's an amazing amount of governmental power bound up with the question of alcohol. Yeah. Um, and that power has been used to police all sorts of groups of people uh, in the American past. And that's a fascinating thing that you know, really animates my research agenda. So I, are you just going to, is your career, are you eventually going to be known as the, the booze guy, et cetera? It's so, it's so funny because I, I, I never <laughs> thought so. You know, I'm a, I think of myself as a historian of democracy. Mm-hmm. And when I was framing the project that became my first book, I was just looking for places in the mid-19th century where Americans were fighting over the question of majority rule and minority rights. And alcohol, by far, was the number one place that I found that other historians hadn't previously talked about. So that's why I went after it. And yeah, now I teach a course on the history of alcohol to undergraduates here at the University of Montana, which is super fun, but also super enlightening. Um, and yeah, I'll probably continue writing about this because there's there's a lot to be said. And as you suggest, there's lots of action around alcohol. I only got to teach this. Uh, well, I teach a class on political parties. And then also mm. the one time I taught the modern half of the U.S. history survey. So planning my lectures on like the 20s and prohibition, I tried to keep it short. And then, of course, the next thing I know it's like 9 p.m. and I'm in my office looking at YouTube videos of people dancing to Charleston on the top of cars 
in the 1920s because that's what happens when you dive into that era. It's just so fascinating. <laughs> yes, it is. Total agreement. Uh, so what is something that someone else has uh, released that you would recommend to our listeners? You know, along the lines of what you were just describing, the Charleston, uh, you know, if, if people haven't seen Ken Burns' documentary on Prohibition, that's certainly worth the time. I mean, fascinating work, great look into the, the 1920s Prohibition era. If you want to read along with that period, I've been using in class uh, historian uh, Lisa McGurr's book, The War on Alcohol. Mm-hmm. I think it's Prohibition and the Rise of the American State came out a few years ago, really good and um, powerful take on the Prohibition era and its impact on the political and governmental scene. And the, I guess I'd also say if, if listeners want to read a classic primary source from the pre-Prohibition era, Jack London's book, John Barleycorn, still holds up really well. And it's a fascinating read. Obviously, Jack London's a, a magnificent writer, but John Barleycorn is his kind of drunkard narrative I've used it in class and we always have fabulous discussions. Um, So I'd recommend that for sure. Oh, that explains. So I'm from Chicago originally. Uh, Been to the bar? (laughs) Oh, the worst. That that might be the worst bar in the city of Chicago in terms of absolute (laughs) Wrigleyville, Chicago Cub fan, drunkards, like don't leave your drink unattended, awful bars in the entire city. It continuously wins all of those sorts of like sarcastic awards about like worst <laughs> bar in the city. Uh, so now I know about it, the origins of its name. So thank you. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Jack London would recognize that space. I'm Have sure you been would. to that bar? Of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I went to graduate school in Chicago. I lived in Chicago for eight years and uh, oh, I've been to, to Barleycorn. Oh, okay. I, you went to University of Chicago. Oh, I went to Northwestern. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. We could have met in the middle. I'm also a Sox fan. (laughs) And I think that Cubs Cubs fans are human monsters who don't know how trains work or society works. Um, (laughs) Anyway, well, uh, those are great recommendations and they will be up on our social media feed as is the practice. Great. Vogue. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a thrill and hopefully we will speak with you again. Thanks, Ian. This was super fun. Have a great day. That's our show. If you haven't yet subscribed to us on your favorite listening platform, now's the time. And be sure to follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Mainly History so you get our list of books and other media discussed in our episodes and so that you can stay up to date on all the latest Mainly History goings on. Join us next time as we commemorate the 30th anniversary of Ross Perot launching his independent campaign for the presidency in February 1992. For reasons that I just had to investigate, Maine was the state in which the idiosyncratic Texas businessman did best on the way to carrying 19% of the popular vote, the best for a third-party candidate since 1912. Alternately impressive and oddball, Ross Perot defies easy categorization. But looking back at his history-making campaign can tell us a great deal about the state of politics in Maine and the nation in 1992. That's next time on Mainly History.